All right, today we're going to look at a uh, well-known sugya in Kiddushin, uh, which is the sugya of what we call Tanai Kaful. And the reason that it's here, well, there's several reasons for it. First of all, because uh, the uh, Mishnayot that we dealt with, a few of them in the second parak and now a few of them in the third parak, deal with Tanaim. In other words, making Kiddushin conditional upon something, conditional upon a status, conditional upon a gift, conditional upon an activ activity. And the fact that you can make any sort of negotiated uh, or even unilateral deal contingent on an action is something that is a premise in halakha. Uh, and the, the, the question really is the contours of that condition. All right, so just quickly to get a kind of bird's eye view of it, the critical sugya in Tanakh that we're looking at is the request of B'nai Reuven and B'nai God to, um, to inherit land on the East Bank. Remember, the context is Am Yisrael is marching through the East Bank. Actually, they're camped in Arvot Moab. Uh, and when they want to, before that, when they want to come into Israel, they want to come peaceably through the land of either Edom or Ammon or Moab, and none of them will allow them to come through. And we are commanded by God not to make war against them. And fortunately for us, a marauder from the West Bank has conquered the precious um, western half of the East Bank, that that abuts the river, and that which is today about 90% of Jordan's GDP, uh, and that is Sihon. And Sihon, we weren't commanded to leave alone. He's a Kanani. And so therefore, we were an MOE of some sort. And so therefore, we're allowed to go to war against him. We go to war against him. We want to go through peaceably. He comes out with arms. We come out with arms. We win. Gadol, Og gets involved. So we win that. So we have the whole strip going from approximately uh, the beginning or a little bit south of the beginning of the Dead Sea all the way up to the Golan is now in our hands. Flash forward, and Moshe is about to lead us into the land, and two tribes come up and say, and they have reasons to be dissatisfied, two tri tribes come up and say, we've got a lot of cattle, we've got a lot of flock, and the land here is quite lush, and they don't say anything more. And then Moshe kind of waits for them, because he wants them to actually say what they want. And they say, if you were agreeable, please don't make us cross the Ardain, let us stay here. And Moshe then reams them. Now, parenthetically, there's a reason for each of these tribes to make this um, make this move. Shevet Ruvain was clearly dissatisfied, and they were probably, by the way, one of the sore spots in Moshe's leadership, meaning they were a source of some of the rebellion. Think of Dathan and Aviram from Ruvain for reasons that may fit within the relationship of their eponymous founder, because Ruvain himself was deprived of the Bechorah, and B'nai Le'ah felt slighted because of B'nai Rachel, etc. So there's a lot of that kind of enmity going on. And they may have wished to just sort of stay far away. Uh, B'nai God may have the same kind of feeling because B'nai God are from the same family from the house of Le'ah, and they are the oldest of the uh, of the um, um, B'nai Hashfachot uh, in the house of Le'ah. So it could be, and it could be there's other reasons. Either way, that's the request that they make. Moshe reams them. Finally, they come up with an a proposal plan, which is we will build cities for our cattle and for our flocks and for our kids and for our women and on the East Bank. And then we will go as the vanguard of the force to cross the Ardain and conquer the land. And we will not agree to come back to our cities on the East Bank until everybody has won the war. And Moshe agrees with that condition. Parenthetically, it clearly does not mean that they're all going to go to war while their wives, children, flock, old people, etc., are staying on the East Bank because that would be suicide. They would come back and find them all gone. Uh, and it's clear from the numbers also because those two tribes, plus the major family of Menashe, Machir, who's also going to inherit on the East Side, but further up, uh, number approximately 120 to 140,000 soldiers. And yet in Sefer Yoshua, the vanguard described as crossing the Arden first is 40,000, which means a lot of them stayed behind and ostensibly to guard the cities. In any case, 
Moshe agrees to their condition. Um, Moshe then makes a condition uh, in the presence of Yehoshua and Elazar, who are going to be in charge of the settlement. And here's the here's the statement. Which means Moshe charges Ruvain and God um, to or entrust them to Elazar and Yoshua. And to the heads of all the other tribes. Here's what he states. So if these two tribes cross with you, and they are the chalutzim, they are the vanguard of the war, and the land is conquered, then they get to have the land of Gilad, which is on the east bank, as a holding. And then Moshe adds, but if they don't cross over as the vanguard, then they will settle with you in your midst in Eretz Canaan. Now, question is, what do you make of this statement? You could make the come to the conclusion that a statement is only as good as its own words, and inferring the inverse from a conditional statement is not a legitimate or reasonable conclusion. Which means that when Moshe says, if B'nai Gadam de Ruvain crosses the vanguard, then they get land in Gilad. And that's all he has to say. And the clear implication is that if they don't cross from you with you, then they don't get land in the Gilad. That's one way to say it, which would mean that you don't know, really need to double up this condition and give the inverse side of it. On the other hand, you could point out that there are infinite possibilities, meaning this is not a binary choice. Like I would say to my students, if you get over 90% on the test, you don't have to do the, the semester project. From there, you can understand if you get less than 90%, you have to do it. There's only have to and not have to. But here, there are more than two choices. One choice is that they get land on, on, the, on the East Bank. The other choice is they get land on the West Bank. The third choice is they do not get any independent land on the West Bank, but they have to live among other tribes who will take them in on the West Bank. The fourth is they don't get any land at all. Now, some of these may seem a little bit harsh, but there are other options. And the options presented here is that they'll get land on the West Bank, which means they won't really have lost anything. They just won't have gained their extra piece that they want. Now, that leads us to the famous Machloket. We'll, we'll ignore the rest of the Tzukim here because we're going to come back to them in the analysis. Now, prefatory Mishnah before we get to ours. Because I mentioned earlier that the legitimacy of making a tanai, and a tanai again is not just about kiddushin, it's about gittin, it's about mechirot, it's about schirut, it's about all sorts of other negotiations where you can put a condition on it. However, so therefore, if you make a condition against what the Torah says, your tanai is batel. That's first of all. Let me give you an example of that. Famous machlokot Ramir Rabbi Yehuda, and we had it in the fifth parak of Tubot. If a guy comes up to a girl and says, I'm giving you Kedushin, and the condition of the Kedushin are that you have no claim of the basic obligations the Torah puts on me, which is reading like the Rambam, clothing and uh, food and clothing and conjugal relations. Then, the, then you have three options here. Option number one is, the Kiddushin are invalid because he's trying to set up some alternate form of Kiddushin. The other one, which is the opposite conclusion, is Kiddushin are valid and your Tanai is ignored because you tried to rewrite Kiddushin, so the Kiddushin are valid, but your rewriting doesn't work. And the third option, of course, is that it works, which is that the Kiddushin are valid and she has no claim of Sher Ksut and Onat. By the way, Rabbi Huda's opinion is that when it comes to Sher and Ksut, it works because she can forgive a financial debt like anyone can. The mayor says it doesn't work. The Rabbi Yudha agrees that when it comes to Ona, which is Tsara de Gufa, it doesn't work. But the point of that line in the Mishnah is that there's a limit to Tnaim. You cannot make a Tnai that subverts the, the idealized relationship of that transaction as the Torah presents it. So the idealized relationship of a husband and wife, meaning, I don't mean ideal in the sense of perfect, I mean the way that the Torah presents it, 
is that the husband has a chiv of sherek sutan or not. So if you try to arrange kedushin that sidestep that, that tanai is ignored. Okay. Second, the whole tanai. This is a mishnah in Bamitzia. The whole tanai shu masem mitchilato tanobatel, which seems to mean if you make a tanai, but the way you present it is the conclusion first, and then the tanai. The tanai is ignored. So, for instance, if you were to say, and this is, by the way, the language that we use throughout the Masachet, Here's Kiddushin that are, that are valid if you give me 200 zoos. The whole tonight is ignored. You know why? Because what did he say first? What the way he has to say it is, if you give me 200 zoos, then we are, the Kiddushin are valid. You, know, you have to say the tonight first. And there's a, yet a third rule of Tanaim. Meaning, if the Tanai is something that could be done, then, and you made the Tanai first, then it's valid. So in other words, if you were to say, if you jump up and, and take a bite out of the moon, then the Kiddushin are valid, and if not, not, guess what? The Kiddushin are valid, and we ignore that silly thing. Because that's not fit, that's not doable. All right, so three laws of the Tanaim. One is the order. And I'm going out of order for this. And that is that you have to first present the Tanai, then the conclusion. Second of all, going to the first one, your Tanai cannot be something that subverts the relationship established by the contract as the Torah envisions it. And third, which is third, is the Tanai has to be something that is actually doable. Okay, now let's get to our Mishnah. Reb Meir Omer, Call tonight, and that, by the way, you see how this is sort of in the same spirit. Call tonight, which means that Ramir seems to be saying that the model of a tonight is the tonight we had in this passage here of Bnei God and Bnei Ruvain. And therefore, any tie that does not follow that, the contours of that, doesn't work. So let's see, what is it that was in the tonight? The first thing is, notice how Moshe said it. If they cross, they get land. If they don't cross, they don't get land. So what things do you immediately see there that fit what we already learned? The first thing is... The, the order. The order, which is the Tanai before the Maaseh. The second thing is that the Tanai is not something that's against the Torah. Right? The third it's doable. Thing, and the third thing is doable. Right. Absolutely. And so Remeir seems to be sort of summarizing what that other Mishnah said, but not really. Now, what is Ramir's point? So if Ramir is really the one who's quoting this entire long passage, which is inordinately long for a quote in a Mishnah, then it's this new point, which is meaning you have to both present the positive and the negative, or the or the success and failure of the Tanai and the consequences. And it's not enough to leave it to, in, to inferring it by, by the inverse. And I see that from Rechanim Gachanani Gamliel's descent with Rameir. Meaning, the inverse had to be stated. This is like a Tzrichuta argument. Meaning, Without the inverse being stated, there's something, some misinformation I would have come to. Bad conclusion. Right? Meaning that if I didn't have the inverse stated explicitly, I could easily come to the conclusion that if they don't cross and do their job as the vanguard, they don't get land anywhere. Therefore, Moshe has to say they get land in Canaan. But Liel is really cutting down to the core issue is that not every statement has an automatic and singular inver inver inverted inference. In other words, like we said, there could be a range of inferences or a range of, shall we say, consequences to failure to fulfilling it tonight, and without stating it, you don't know which one it is. And that's what he's hitting on here, which is that you have to, you have to uh, state what the consequences would be of them not crossing over. So the point of dissension here seems to be the issue of doubling the Tanai, which means we now have four rules of a Tanai. First of all, it has to be something not against the Torah. Second of all, it has to be something doable. 
Third of all, it has to be something that's doubled. And fourth of all, I'm not going in a particular order, you have to present the tie before the action. Okay. Before we get into the sugya, I just want to show you the Rambam, because the Rambam summarizes beautifully, as always. The Rambam in Hilchot Yishut, because Kiddushin is what is the place that in the in Shas, the laws of Tanaim are presented, as you see in our in our sugya, along with other places. Um, but we also found that in the case of Kiddushin, for reasons that I think we can sort of understand, seems to be the most prevalent area where actually people would put conditions, for reasons that you can sort of see. So the Rambam says here in Halacha Aleph in, in Paragvav Yichod Yishut, Hamakadesh al tonight, if you do Kiddushim with a condition, Im Kayim Atanami Kudesh Mab, non Kayim Enam Kudesh. So, first of all, if the condition is fulfilled, Kiddushim are valid, and if not, not, which means Tanaim have power. Okay. Bain Shayatanami Naish, Bain Shayami Naisha, it doesn't matter which side puts the condition, which the tonight. The man can give her a, a ring and say, if you, I'm going to do it right. If you, uh, paint my house, these kiddushin are valid. And if you don't paint my house, these kiddushin are invalid. That fits all the all the criteria. Nothing prohibited about it. I put the tonight first. I doubled it up. Um, I uh, it's something she can do. Okay. Now the whole tonight shiba olam, meaning not just kiddushin, but anywhere in the world that you want to talk about it tonight. Bain be kiddushin be gerushin, bain be mekachum emkar, bain be shar mamon. Any area. You need four things. And now the next halacha says, then our badvarim shall call tonight. One, shiat tonight kaful. Now notice what he leaves out. It's interesting. That the tonight has to be doubled like Rameir. In other words, you have to say what the consequences of fulfillment are, and you have to explicate what the consequences for non-fulfillment are. This is something we didn't see yet, which is the affirmation has to come first. Because in our case, what did Moshe say? Did Moshe say, if they don't cross, they don't get land? And then if they cross, they do get land? No, he said the opposite. The confirmation, if they cross, Vanguard, etc., they get the land. And then if they don't cross, they don't get the land. The third condition is that the Tanai has to come first before the, before the, the, the uh, should we say, the target or the transaction. And Shiat tonight, the Rosh of Shalakamo has to be something that's doable. Notice what he left out. Which one did he leave out? The order. What? The order. Uh, no, he put Hen Kodam Lavav and tonight Kodam Lamaseh. He put both things in order in there. Which uh -huh. one did he leave out? He left out Matnel Mashkatu Batorah. He left out uh, right. that because it's really kind of a different. This is what we call Mishpatea Tanaim. So, meaning if one of these things was missing, doesn't mean the deal is off. It means as if there was no tonight. The deal goes through 100% immediately without waiting because the tonight is ignored. So these four rules are the rules of time. Okay, so that gives us. Now, let's get into what we're here for, which is to look at the sugya and to see how it all plays out. Now, this is, and it's something we did a couple of days ago in, in the DAF, but now we have a chance to do it a little bit more slowly and to analyze how the, the back and forth goes. Interestingly enough, Yushalmi has like no discussion about this topic. But in the Bavali, here we go. Now, this is... Um, a, a kind of a classic example of reconstructing an argument, right? Because Reb Meir said one thing, which is that any tonight that does not follow the contours of Negan and Ruvain is an invalid tonight, ignored tonight. And Chanamigamliel says that's not true because in the case of Benegadim Neiruvain, there was a third option, and therefore it had to be stated both sides. Both sides had to be stated because otherwise you wouldn't know what the what the consequence of a non-fulfillment would be. Very good. That's the end of the discussion. Now watch what happens. Bish the Malar Mayor, and I want you to be sensitive to this. Hainu dichtiv aztinakem Now, Bish the Malar Mayor means. 
Ramirez not making this argument. We are. And we are sitting here in Bavel a few hundred years later, and we know the mayor's position, position, and we're saying, let's test the Tanakh and see what conditions look like in Tanakh. Now, by the way, why are we concerned with that? Why are we concerned with the way conditions are in Tanakh? After all, we don't speak Tanakh Hebrew. We don't eat Tanakh meals. Like, why are we concerned with having our conditions be similar to that of Tanakh? Do you need support from Tanakh if you want to draw conclusions? Um, what happened to Tosh Valpat? <laughs> All right, so your first claim can be, we don't have a Masora. We don't have a Tosh Valpat on this. So we have to look at Tanakh. But there's a different reason. What, where did Reb Meir come from? Notice, I want to show you the difference here. Look at the first Mishnah here from Bab Metziah. What does it say? It gives you three rules of Tanakh. What's missing from this section? It says any tanai against the Torah doesn't work. Any tanai which is which in which you did the order backwards is no good, and any tanai which is not physically doable is no good. What's missing from this Mishnah? The double. Okay, there's another. But even three <laughs> laws, what's missing? Compare it to our Mishnah right here. The font may be a giveaway. Oh, there's no puzzle. There's no source. Okay. Right. Mr. Bubmatsia simply says, here's rules of time. Right? And by the way, these rules of time are eminently reasonable also. In other words, the, the, let's think about the first one. The Torah says, here's what marriage looks like. The Torah says, here's what divorce looks like. The Torah says, here's what a business deal looks like. And you try to rewrite the Torah's idea of any of those. So we say, who, who are you? You're creating some new sort of the Kedushin. You're creating some sort of new Gerushin. They can't do that. You work within the system of the Torah, and within that system, there's breadth for you to add in your own personal uh, desires, but not to rewrite them. So I get the first one. The second one is also eminently reasonable. Because look at what you said. You said, you're Mikudesha to me if. Too late, you just said Mikudesha to me. The if is gone. So the if has to come first. And the third one is that if a person says, you're Mikudesha to me if you jump up and kiss the moon, and if not, not. So there's two ways to, to, to understand that. One way is the guy means I'll never marry you. In which case, be quiet and go away. Leave the girl alone. The other way is that you're just saying something silly, like an exaggeration, and we ignore it. So these things make a lot of sense. What does Rameer do in our Mishnah? He adds a fourth rule of Tanaim, which is a Tanai Kaful. The Tanai has to be doubled. But here he's got something going for him, which is, if you look in the Torah, you can actually see a case of a Tanai, and the Tanai is Kaful. Which, if you think about it, is a nice thing to have, and is also not eminently reasonable. Meaning, without the Pasuk, I wouldn't have said this. Why? Because, remember the example that I gave. If I say any student who gets over 90% on the exam doesn't have to do the, the semester project, it is very, very reasonably inferred that a student who gets less than 90 has to do the semester project. Because there's no real third option. And so therefore, unlike the three law, the three Mishpatayatunayim here, this is not an in, intuitive rule. So Rameer got it from a pasuk. Mechalim Gamliel's response is to respond to the Pasuk and say, in that case, both the, the consequences of fulfillment and the consequences of non-fulfillment had to be stated because there's a third option. Okay. So now, what does the Gemara do? The Gemara says, okay, this entire thing revolves around Pasukim. Let's see what the range of Tanaim presented in the Torah and in the rest of Tanakh seem to bear out about what how the Torah understands what we're supposed to take from a statement. Are we only supposed to take from a statement its, its face value, or are we supposed to also infer from it other things? Here we go. So it's going to now play with Sukim all over the place. Okay. Um, now, Bishlama or mayor. Okay. Now, by the way, remember, Bishlama means... 
What does Bishlama mean? It all works out. It works yeah. out. And what's Bishlama always going to be followed by at some point? The, the person. Well, no, in our case, but everywhere. Ella. It's always going to be followed by Ella. Bishlama always followed by Ella. Because Bishlama no. says this position works out, this Chacham works out, this whatever works out. However, it doesn't work out over there. So Bishlama, our mayor, is going to be followed by Elohim and Migamleel. So and they go to the Pasuk of Avram speaking to his slave about going and getting a wife for Yitzchak and saying, if they don't let her go, then you're off the hook. Right? So now, why did Avram have to say that? I'm, I'm making you take an oath, which is that you will not take a wife for Yitzchak uh, from the daughters of Canaan. Rather, you will go to my Altaraheim in uh, in Frankfurt, sorry, in uh, Nahor, in, in Haran, in Nahor, and you'll find a wife from the family. And now, let's think about it. You are Avraham's slave, and you've made this commitment. How much of this commitment is in your control? None of it, really. None, you're a slave. You can go, you can do, you can try. But it's not in your control, which means all you can do is try. And so, therefore, Avram says, and if they don't agree to, to let her to uh, to let her go, then you're off the hook. Well, but remember, the commitment was not that he would take a wife. The commitment was that he would not take a local wife, and that he would try to get a wife from there. And that's the oath, which means, therefore, if if Avram had to say to him. And if you don't, are not successful in getting her to come, then you're off the hook, seems to be extra, and seems to now create a model and saying, this is what they did in Tanakh. When they made a condition, they presented both sides. Right? You understand now what the question is. But again, they aren't having this discussion. We are. And the answer is, Itztarich. Now, what does Itztarich here mean? We have well, to have it's needed, but needed, what does that mean? It was needed. It means Avram had to say it. Oh. Right? In other words, what we're saying is as follows. We're po positing for a mayor that Avram had no need to say this line. And the only reason he said it was because that's the formal way you do any tonight. Otherwise, it's not a tonight. Gamliel will answer if he's right. He's not there, but it's what he can answer. So, no, Avram had to say that. Why? Salka datach amena. In other words, and here it's here it's different than usual. Normally, salka amena. I mean, I would have thought, but salka datach amena means actually the slave would have thought. Hecha denecha lala dida. Let's say that she is willing to go, but the family is not willing to let her go. Mighty Maybe you should grab her and take her against their will, which of course is, is bizarre itself. But in other words, our Havamina is, I'm sending you on this holy mission to go find a wife for Yitzchak from the family from Haran. You find a girl who fits that model, and she's willing to go, even if they don't agree, you should grab her and bring her. So Kamash Milan, that if they don't agree, you're off the hook. Meaning that their agreement is also critical here. Now I gotta end, I gotta just interject a parenthetic note that I mentioned very quickly in, in our morning shear, but just a, a thing about who we're talking about. We're talking about Rivka. All right. How old was Rivka at the time? You're right. We don't know. It doesn't say. But what's the traditional understanding of how old Rivka was at the time? Three. So if you if you take that version of Seder Olam that Rashi quotes as having her be three, which then, of course, is all contingent on the Akedah happening at the type, time of Sarah's death, and that means Yitzchak was 37 at the Akedah, and he married when he was 40, and this is when she was born, so therefore she was three when when she married Yitzchak, which is very troubling for a number of reasons, then you have a different problem. 
how could the Gemara even entertain the possibility that we're talking about a case where the girl will be interested in going, but the right. family won't be willing? Uh, who's the three-year-old girl that makes this decision? Well, that's a problem, of course, in the text, because in the final analysis, what happens, they say to the girl, do you want to go with the man? He says, go, and they give her a goodbye party. All right. Now, important to note that that statement of her being three is from one of the manuscripts of Midrash Seder Olam. Midrash Seder Olam, second century Midrash, or associated with the second century in Rabbi Yossi, is a chronography sort of of Tanakh all the way through his period. And it is the source of many of the Midrashic statements that we have, including some quoted in the Gemara, that put dates on events that don't have any dates in Tanakh or ages with people. You know, how old was Yaakov when he ran away from home? 63. How old was he? He got to, to Haran. He was 77. Where was he for 14 years? Yeshiva Shoshan Weber. All that's in Seder Olam. In Melikowski's long-awaited uh, critical edition of Seder Olam, he points out that almost all of the proper manuscripts of Seder Olam have Rivka as being 14 at this point. And Yitzhak was 26 at the Akedah. I never, I never caught that part because I, I started with the 160 years. Right. So, right. so, so important to note that. And there's so much in the Parsha that just doesn't work for a three-year-old girl. But I will leave that alone. I just had to put that in. All right. In any case, um, now, we're not done. So now, why did Avram have to add in the condition if the girl doesn't want to go? The answer is again, what if the family's willing, but she doesn't want to go? Maybe we should grab her. So Kamash Balan, that both she and the family have to be willing to go. And of course, now, based on that, we say that's why all of these conditions have to be explicated in every direction, not because you can't infer the, in, the negative from the positive. But because each 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 um, condition allows for several conclusions for non fulfillment, and yet to state what they were. All right, so that was the first text case. Now, notice, and this is another important methodological point. We have a machloka between the mayor and Chanami Gamliel, which has huge implications, because as you know from the Gemara, may, putting conditions on all sorts of deals, specifically getting and kiddushin, seem to be common. And therefore, we're saying that unless you formulate the condition properly, your condition's ignored. And so therefore, if we're going to say tonight kaful, suddenly everything really has to be doubled and in the right order, etc. Um, the, the commission before the, before the failure. Um, and so we want to see what the halacha is. Now, in our Mishnah, we didn't have a ruling. The Gemara doesn't have a ruling. But you can tell what the ruling of, is of the Gemara because you start to see whose position does the Gemara intuitively favor. Uh, favor. All right, so let's do a couple more of these and we'll see. And so in the famous Tochacha in Vayikra, and by the way, the same exact thing could be said for Kitavo. It starts with if you do all of the mitzvot, you'll have rain, you'll have security, you'll beat your enemies, etc. And then, if you reject my laws, then I'll smash you and I'll hit you, and seven times over, etc., etc. Now, the truth is, this doesn't really seem to support Remeir. Because, of course, if Hashem says, if you follow the laws, the following will happen. Then what are you to infer from that about what happens if you don't follow the laws? You may reasonably infer, but not with actual certitude, that those things won't happen. It won't rain. But what will happen? Will it just be average rainfall as opposed to great rainfall? Will there be sort of average security so that you won't have absolute security? Or will it be drought and being wiped out in war? It doesn't say. So now, and again, he will, his claim will be, and again, he, he's not there. We're saying, here's how he can answer it, that you need to present the negative because Now, 
Now, of course, we're trained to think differently. There's nothing in, inherently in the inherent in text that would tell us differently. We'll give you all these brachot. And if you reject his laws, then okay, you won't get brachot, you won't get klalot. Kamash Malan, that you will get cursed. Now, Right? So this is now in Yeshayahu Perak Aleph, Chazon. Right? And what does Yeshayahu say when he's rebuking the people? If you want to do the right thing and you listen to Hashem, then things will be good. But if you reject and you rebel, then Cherev to Uklu. You'll be devoured by the sword. I, I understand that. But again, what's very difficult here is that this does not really prove Reb Mayer because there's always a third option. In other words, it's one thing to say, and going back to my model, if you get over 90% on the test, you're exempt from the, the semester project. And then there's only one other option. Is it either you have to do the semester project or you don't? So because I said that a select group of students are exempt, the clear implication is everybody else has to do it. But if I say to you that uh, anybody who passes the final exam will get an ice cream bar, I have no idea what's going to happen to the people who fail the exam. Are they going to get a smaller ice cream bar? Are they going to get just a Kit Kat dipped in chocolate milk? Are they going to get slapped across the face? Are they going to get expelled? I have no idea. Sorry, I'm in school all day, so that's what I'm thinking. All right, so you understand that we have the same problem of there's always a lot of options. It's not binary. So the Gemara picks up on that. It's like, im tovu tova. Maybe Yishael meant to say, if you do good stuff, you'll have good things. And then I would think that if I don't do good things, then all right, things will be stay the same, but nothing special. Kamash Milan, that... Uh, that you'll be punished. And then remember, you have this tangent, about what's cherub to uklu, the bad foods, I don't want to go there right now. Now, I want to stop here and ask the following question. If you were stuck right now, without any sfarim, and all you had was this piece of gemara, and somebody came up to you and said, I want to make a tonight, do I have, and I made it tonight on Kiddush, and everything was perfect, except I did not make it tonight kaful. I said to the girl, if you give me $1,000 by Tuesday, these Kiddush are valid, and came Tuesday, she didn't give me the thousand dollars. Does she need to get from me? What would what would you say? What would you think, based on what we've seen? Should I give you the case no. again? Yeah, but yeah. Okay, the case yeah, again. I... Okay, I'll quickly. A guy go comes up to a girl and says. Give me $10,000. I want to make it fun. Give me $100,000 by next Tuesday, and these kiddushin are valid. Right? If you give me $100,000 by next Tuesday, these kiddushin are valid. He presented something that's not against the Torah. He presented something that's doable. He presented the condition before the action. Right? And, um, and then she did not give him the, the $100,000 by Tuesday. And he's so infuriated that he doesn't want to be married to her. Does she need to get or not? Oh, because the the conditions that had to be met, none of them were met. Which means there's no condition at all. Correct. Okay. According to Gamliel, what would you say? Gamliel would say there is a thousand, right? Because you don't need to double the tonight. And because that tonight is very clearly binary. If you give me the money, condition you're valid. Implying, if you don't give the condition, condition are invalid. It's easy. So according to him, you wouldn't need the you wouldn't need it. According to our mayor, you wouldn't need it because you didn't say a proper tonight. You ignore the tonight. So we need to know what the halacha is. The Lord's not telling us. How are we going to tell? So you tell me once you pick it up. All right. Here we go. We got one from Gamliel. In other words, we're going to find a case where it seems like. A, a one-sided condition is presented only. Well, where's this from? Sota. Sota, the Kohen issues an oath, and the oath is, if no man, beside your husband, slept with you and you did not stray from your husband, then be cleansed from these waters. Right? Mm -hmm. What does he not say? 
If you didn't sleep, she didn't sleep, then she won't be cleansed. Or she'll die. Right. Now, the truth is, he actually does say that. But there's there's several components to the Shavuah and the Allah there. In this component, all he presents is the innocence. And, by the way, this one is binary, isn't it? Which is, yeah. you will now. Well, kind of. Okay, good. Please tell me what the kind of is. Well, what happens if she's guilty? Or, right. Right. She doesn't won't say be she's going to die. Yeah. So she won't be cleansed, but we don't know what that means. Right? right. Good. So now, according to mayor, what should it say? No, it's a little bit misleading. Be choked from this water. Be, let the water kill you. Right? So now, watch what happens. And this is very fancy footwork. Now, here's the, here's the ticket. We're talking about Aim Lamasura and Aim Lamikra. If you look at the last word on the second line, right here, you'll see it says, Hey Nun Kuf Yod. Now remember, in Bavel and in the Galil, and almost everywhere in the Jewish world that we know of at the time, Hayes and Chetz were interchangeable. Right? They pronounced the two somewhat similar. And so, and a Hey and a Chet in Ktav Arami, Ktav Ashuri looks alike almost. You just have to close it up. And so the statement was, you know, it says Hinaki, but you could read it as chinki. Now, here's part of the trick. How would you write hinaki if you're writing it in modern Hebrew, where we use a lot more matrix lectionis, a lot more vowels? How would you write it? after the hey. You put a yod, right? Hey, yod, nun, kuf, yod. The fact that Torah left that out means oh, we could read this as, as chinki. But notice what, that what we're saying is, that we're not suggesting that according to a mayor, we should pretend there's a whole other line in the Torah, but rather that the word is an equivoke. It can be read as hinki or chinki, which means that it's kind of alluding to both possibilities, which means your mayor is really not off the hook there. But we're going to flip it and say, beast or mayor, meaning according to Gamliel, it could have said just uh, titari or something else. Why use this weird word that allows for both interpretations? Oh, the answer is the same old answer he gives every time, which is, again, like you said, we don't know what the option is if you are guilty. All we know is that if you're innocent, you'll be cleansed. And if you're guilty, what? You'll die, you'll suffer, you'll abort, you'll uh, you'll uh, be, dis- be uh, how do you call it, uh, uh, disgraced. So, and maybe if you're guilty, then nothing will happen to you. You won't be able to, you have to leave your husband. I understand that. All right. So, that so again, every time that we've now noticed again, uh, my, my, I'm repeating this point that Ramey Rucham and Gamliel are not actually talking to each other. Right. But rather, we are reconstructing a possible discussion between them. Okay, but um, but um, in this, there's there's like a lot of dancing around, as it were, because every one of the proofs that we brought for a mayor really was a little bit weak because there was always a third option. Right? Would a mayor himself have used this? As an argument, used as an argument, we don't know. Mm-hmm. All right, so let's go ahead. This is in Paraduma. Now, this is in a legal text. And the legal text says if the, the guy has to do the Hazah on the third day and the seventh day of his Tumah, and then he becomes Tahor, and if he does not do it on the third day and on the seventh day, he's not Tahor. That's a really good example. Because mm-hmm. Tahor Tameh is binary. Right. And it's pretty clear. If you go to the mikvah, you're Tahor. Obviously, don't go to the mikvah, you're not Tahor. Right? If you do Azan, day three and seven, you're Tahor. If not, not. So, So this is really a much stronger proof because here we only have a binary uh, possibility. 
not exactly because mitzvah meaning the ideal is day three and seven. Maybe one of those days is enough. In other words, look at the pasuk again. It's right above. Who yitchatavo bayom hashlishi uvayom hashvi yitar. Now you could read that generously as follows: He should spritz it on the third day, or on the seventh day, and become tahor. Why not? Or to say there's two different days on which you have to do the spritzing. Eh, do either one of them, you're fine. You could read it that way. Kamash and that's why it has to say, and if he doesn't do the third day and the seventh day, he's not Tahor. Because I would think there's a there's a middle ground. Now, later on in the Parsha, it says, Vizator and describing it. So Lamali, what do we need that for? It's dark. Because I would think the following, that by Yom HaShlishi is there to say, you cannot do the first one on Yom HaShini. You have to have at least two full days between Tuma and the beginning of Tahara. And Shvi, the Mutei Shishi, meaning you can't do Shlishi and Shishi. You can't have only three days between the first and the second Hazar. Come in might be made Tahara, because what are you doing? You are yes. lessening the amount of days of Tahara that you need between the first tuma, the tuma, and the first spritz, the first spritz, second spritz. Aval, If I did the third day and the eighth day, I'm adding to you So that last pasuk was there to tell me that not only you have to do both shlishi and shvi, but you also do have to have a four day break between them and not more. You could do day two o nine and two thirteen. That's fine. But once you start, and you've had at least two days of Tumah before you start, then you have to have exactly four days later when you do the second spritz. Okay? So what do I need that for? It starts. This, what? No, I'm just reading to myself. Now, in other words... Um, why does it say and at the end of that pasuk he gets cleansed on the seventh day? So this is a side point. This is not Ramir versus Rabbi Gamliel, because I would think that this is only true for Kodshim of all the Truma Bachad Nami Sagya. We're gonna sort of play a little bit of a tease here, like tease it out a little bit, which is I would have reason to think that the high demands, and I'll tell you why I would think that, that the high demands placed on Tahara here of doing it on day three and day seven, and not either or, only apply to Kodshin. When it comes to Truma, either day is okay. Now, why is that at all a reasonable conclusion? Because think about it in the context of the Parsha Paraduma, the focus is consistently on the Mikdash. Right, and we say right? If somebody doesn't do the the process, then they get carried. What do they get carried for? We're ultimately we're not getting carried for that. But what would they get carried for? To get carried for either entering the mikdash or eating kodshim in a state of tahara. Right, tuma doesn't have that stricture. So I, I realize that although as a kohen tamei, I cannot. I'm not a kohen, but as a kohen tamei, I cannot eat truma. Nonetheless, I know that the violation involved in me eating truma as a, as a coin to me is not nearly as egregious as uh, if I uh, if I him. And so therefore I might think, okay, the high demands of uh, of Shlishi and Shvi and the Mikvan Shvi, Chitobe uh, Shvi, is for Kodshim, but maybe for Truma it's less. So what we've seen here though is something which is typical and not typical. And not typical and typical. Are right, you ready for this? Okay. It's first of all, in what way is this sugya typical? What about this sugya is typical and you find it in other sugyot? Okay. So, I mean, it's a little bit of an unfair question because I'm looking at a particular vision of it. But Part of what makes this sugya typical is that we have an undecided 
machloket in the Mishnah. And then what we're attempting to do is to determine, based on our own evidence, which direction we should take. In other words, we're trying to resolve a dispute and settle on one position based on our own reasoning. Right? That's first of all. Right? Second of all, that makes it somewhat typical. What makes this atypical? Unusual for sugya. So you think about it, how many sugyot have you come across that are basically um, Tanakh contests? Right. You see that everything in this sugya is all about, I got a pasuk, you got a pasuk, I got a pasuk, you got a pasuk, right? I'll tell you a quick story just to kind of tell you where I'm coming from. Um, there, there's a shul in uh, Kiryat Shmuel of Nirachavia um, that my great-grandfather helped to found. So when I lived near there, that's where I would go to Davin. I Davin there every Shabbos morning. We had a beautiful 6.30 minion, right? And it was uh, very, very nice. And there was an old man there um, who was a kind of a caretaker of the shul. And so one day I was walking up to Ben Chagdola and I saw him and I said to him, did you know my great-grandfather? So what was his name? I, said, I told him his name. He said, I not only knew your great-grandfather, but I once won three bottles of beer from him in a Tanakh contest. I said, okay, tell me the story. So he said, it used to be in the old Yishuv that they would have their weddings on Friday because they couldn't afford to make Shavu Brachot. So they have weddings Friday afternoon. Friday night dinner was Shavu Brachot. Shabbos morning was Shavu Brachot. And Shalasudas was Shavu Brachot for the whole Yishuv, which was what, a couple thousand people. And uh, and then Monday, you go back to work. So at Shalasudas, there would be some like entertainment. They'd some have contests for Sukei Tanakh. And he said, and your great-grandfather and I got into it. I'd, he, I'd throw a pasuk at him. He'd tell me where it was. He'd throw a pasuk at me. I'd tell him where it was. And he even told me the pasuk. I forgot which one. He even told him pasuk that he stymied, that he, that he stymied my uh, great-grandfather on and was able to win three bottles of beer from him. So these kind of Tanakh contests. But that's kind of what this sugya is. Mm-hmm. Now, remember, Mayor and Chagam are not there. And that's another thing that is typical of the sugya which is that sugyot are reconstructed conversations and imagined dis- disputes. Because all we have is the positions in the Mishnah, and here we're saying, well, here's what Ramea could do with this pasuk, here's what Hamayami could answer. All right? Now, another thing that is typical about the sugya is at no point does the Gemara tell us what the halacha is. Mm-hmm. But you already know what the halacha is. How do you know it? From the Rambam. Oh. And what's the first of the four rules in the Rambam? It's not a couple. Not a couple. So we rule like Rameir. So now look into the sugya and tell me, if you can, why how we know to rule like Rameir. Think about it. Rameir's position is constantly questionable. Right? Because every time that Rameir, we bring up a proof that supports Rameir, we identify the third option that made it not a good proof. Because remember, what's Rameir's point? Even when there is a clear, decisive, and unquestionable conclusion that you could draw from the positive to the negative, you still have to state it. Otherwise, it's not a tonight. Mm-hmm. Every one of the proofs that we brought for a mayor was not so clear and had multiple options available. So how do I know the rule like a mayor? So what is it? Because they keep saying they keep saying bishloma and have to there go. There we go. That's it, Naftali. Exactly. That you can get a flavor, a sense from the sugya. Who is the sugya kind of riding with? And consistently, Rameir is in the driver's seat, and Rechem Gamliel is up against the wall and has to defend himself. And you get a sense from that that the 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 movement of the sugya is all in favor of Rameir, and Rechem Gamliel is the one who has to keep defending himself. Even though, as we pointed out, with the actual facts, Rebbe Gamliel seems to be in the better position. But it seems that Tanaika Fool is something which is which is necessary. And it all starts with this story about B'nai Gada, B'nai Ruvain, which, again, as we said, there was a third option. Right? Um, now, how? let's just see. How could we defend... Now, the Gemara goes through this at length. But how could we, prima facie, just on the face of it, how could we defend Rameir against Rechamim Gamliel's response in the Mishnah? Look at the Psukim. Moshe says, 
and then they get land. If they don't cross, then they have to stay with you in Eretz Canaan. Chamnin Gamliel correctly points out that there is no obvious conclusion from the inversion that what will happen if they don't cross, it has to be stated because there are several options. Can you defend Reb Meir here? So the Gemara, remember, defends him by saying, then I don't need the words Beretz Canaan. If all I'm trying to state in the inverse is that the option is not that they get no land, and the option is not that they get the land anyways, but the option is that they get land in Canaan, then I just have to They stay with you. Why add Beretz Canaan? To make the whole thing extra, and therefore you need Tanai full. Maybe. Any other way that you could defend a mayor here and say, this whole statement isn't needed and it's just there for Tanaka full. Because remember, this is the only pasuk that we know Ramayor actually hinged on. Everything else we reconstructed. This is the one he, he picked on. Right? And notice, he did not pick Sota. He did not pick Imachukotai. He did not pick uh, Paraduma. He didn't pick those for proof. He picked this for proof. Why? Because it's clear, you know, if you go, if you do fight, okay, then you'll get Yahuza. Yeah. You get nothing. Oh, no, I guess not. You can't say it doesn't get nothing. Good. So let's step back and think about it. What are B'nai Gan and B'nai Ruvain asking for? Land made for the cattle. And what else are they asking for? They're asking for, I know it sounds weird to say asking. They're offering. They are giving up their land on the West Bank. Ah. Everybody forgets that Reuven and God had land allotted to them on the West Bank. Mm-hmm. And their move here created a gerrymandering. So right. the map on the West Bank got shifted, which very likely impacted on Sheva Dan. Mm-hmm. And as a result of that, we have to go back and ask the question. Ruven and God are coming to Moshe and saying, we want to change the rules. We want to, we don't want to, we just don't want to cross with you. We want to stay here. Moshe reams them, absolutely not. So finally, what do they come up with? They come up and say, you know what? We'll agree to be the vanguard. And then when we're done, we'll come back and kind of separate from you. Moshe agrees. But now, is it really an option to say you don't get any land? They would have had the land on the West Bank anyway. Of course. Yeah. Of course. Mm-hmm. Which means that mm-hmm. it really is nothing new. Mm-hmm. That's, that's kind of what they had before. You're not going to penalize them. You're not going to say you just took a shot at blackjack and you lost. Mm-hmm. You're not going to penalize them for doing this. You're just going to say you want something more, here's what you got to do. And the obvious inclusion is, if you don't do something more, you get you get what you had originally, which is no chazuba tochem, merits kanan. That doesn't change. And therefore, this whole line then becomes extra, and Rameer makes his point, and this is the pasuk he picked on, and that's the halacha, it's not kaful. Okay. okay? Good. Um, next week, we, oh. may, we may go into an agadah that we're going to bump into on Daf Samach Zayin. Uh, which is just because we haven't done an Agadah in a long time, and it's a wild story about Yanai Malka and the Chachamim and Eliezer ben Pu'ira, um, and uh, either that, or we may look at the very end of the third parak, which is um, which is actually the Afan Shabbat, which is um, which is the Yecholim Mamzerim Lataher and Rabbi Tarfon's elegant solution for how to fix Mamzerim and why it doesn't work. So we'll see uh, what we do. But uh, we should uh, hear good news from home. And uh, we should continue to pray for our chayalim and for, and for, uh, for all of Am Yisrael. And, so an, interest, uh, an interesting thing on this, okay, yeah. in Baal Oscha, because I got reamed on this when I was 16 or 17 years old. What's on the What's on the God? Yeah. I can't find the medrash again. Because Hashem, to show that Hashem and Moshe did not approve of them wanting to go. Uh, 
Okay, except that that's thirty eight. Yeah, but that that goes against everything that's in in Zosabracha and everything else. But uh, nice. The trump is different. You ever notice the trump is different, or you never paid attention to it? I noticed the trump is different, but I didn't know the midrash. And the midrash is difficult because that parsha happens in the second year, and their request is in the fortieth year. But you know, in Muktam Mucha Bachayim, I guess. But it Joe just says that they hey, you did it yeah. at that point in time. We're not happy with it, so I they did it. They did it with the march, whatever. Could be. In any oh, case, Benegadim Eruven, of course, is an appropriate parsha for us when it comes right. to what we're doing because it's about going to war. Interesting hey, thing yeah. That, yeah. that somebody pointed out a while ago is that in one there was a, a protest in some circles against the government drafting certain young men, you know which circles I'm talking about, and people went to protests and they were upset at people who didn't come to the protests and they held up a sign that said, Will your brethren go to war, meaning the protests, and you stay here? Which is a very ironic use of the pasuk, considering that's exactly what they were violating. But an interesting thing is people are starting to wake up to that now, and there's a lot more interest in many circles in joining the fight and joining the army. So, Hashem, Hashem should watch all of our chayalim, those we know personally, and our relatives, and all the chayalim and chayalot, and Hashem, we should well, have a successful end to the 